Good morning, everybody. Get myself organised. Is everyone doing well this morning? Thumbs up if you are. Middle thumbs if you're kind of. Down thumbs if you're not. Good, everyone's an up thumb. Fantastic. Brilliant, fantastic. Now, I'm sure you would never guess it now, as I am such an upstanding church member and an all-round polite and respectful human. But when I was a child, I had my moments, quite a lot of moments, in fact. My mum's here this morning. I'm sure she can verify much of what I'm about to say. When I was told I couldn't or shouldn't do certain things, and I thought that I should, then my disapproval was made fairly apparent. I was very strong-willed, and I had a scowl that could disperse all joy in any situation. In fact, here is that scowl. This was my resting face till I was approximately nine or ten, I think. My older brother, apparently, if you ask my mum and dad, my older brother Mark was very, very rarely put on the naughty step. And when he was, he was so utterly devastated, he would cry inconsolably and beg for forgiveness. My younger sister, Chloe, was apparently never put on the naughty step. Goody two-shoes. Myself, however, apparently spent more time on the naughty step than off it except quite often I wouldn't actually stay on the step. I used to shuffle up the stairs backwards, one at a time, very furtively, and then go and pursue an activity of my choice instead, until I was firmly plonked back on, whereupon I would soon begin the upward shuffle once again. My poor parents even had to repaper the stairway a couple of times because I performed my very own revenge crimes with my crayons all over the walls. As I got older, I'd like to say my moments of rebellion and my epic frown lessened. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. When I hit my teens, my parents were lucky enough to purchase a small cottage in the Lake District, an absolute haven. I know that when we had it, many people in this church had the chance to use it and see its beauty. When mum and dad first got it, we went up as a family to spend a whole week cleaning, stripping it down, repainting, getting it sorted. I had, however, chosen one of those days to have an epic rebellious sulk. My poor parents ended up being so exasperated with me that they sent me up the garden to the distant shed to go and sit in there and have a think about what I'd done. And when I was ready, I could come back and join the family. I'd been rude, moody and insolent and they hoped that a bit of solitude in that shed would sort me out and they expected me to soon skulk back with my tail between my legs ready to muck in. Oh, how wrong they were. After a good few hours, my mum began to wonder where I was, and she felt really bad about exiling me. She had images of me sobbing alone in the shed, utterly heartbroken and deeply repentant. Oh, how wrong she was. As her and dad opened up the shed door, ready to embrace their prodigal daughter, imagine their shock and indignation to find me happily reclined on a comfortable garden chair I'd found, a book and a cup of tea in my hand and a hot water bottle on my feet, happy as Larry having the time of my life. I got what I didn't deserve. I deserved an unhappy day, a royal telling off and a miserable time of punishment. But instead, I got a relaxed afternoon, chilling out, living my best life. 
There have been other times in my life when I've got what I don't deserve. Times when I've been selfish and uncaring towards my parents, and instead of punishment or uncaring behavior in return, I've received kindness and patience. Times when I've promised my husband, Sam, that I will do something necessary and important, like paying a bill on time or cancelling a vital appointment, and I haven't done it. And instead of receiving irritation or impatience, I've received a hug and understanding. And many, many times when I've lost my temper unnecessarily and snapped at my children, and I've accused them of doing something deliberately that perhaps they just did accidentally because they're a child. And when I say sorry, instead of them rejecting me or blaming me, they always come back with cuddles and kisses and a never-ending stream of love. I don't deserve these things, these responses, but by grace, I get them. And that's what grace is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's the opposite of the theory of karma, which is you get back what you put out. The theory of karma may seem to make more sense to most people. If you hurt someone, then of course they'll hurt you back, etc. And maybe grace makes no sense at all. But doesn't that just make it even more beautiful? We come to chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And this is a chapter all about glimpses of grace and growing in grace. Before I continue, let's remind ourselves that this book contains a love story. Not a short-lived fleeting romance but actually a love story between Ruth and Boaz that reflects our love story with Christ. So as I talk about the relationship between Ruth and Boaz, who I'll be introducing you to shortly, bear in mind that much of it can be used as a way for us to understand how the church and Jesus have a relationship, how us and Jesus have a relationship, and all that he has done for us in love. In verses 4 to 7, we see the first meeting of Ruth and Boaz, and we get a glimpse of Ruth's character that pleased Boaz. Now, Israel has a moderate climate, so that means there are two harvests annually, so it's different to where we live in the UK. They have a spring harvest and an autumn harvest. And Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem during the spring barley harvest. As the grain was collected, it was Israelite law that the corners of the fields would be left unharvested, and additionally, any grain that fell to the ground would be left for the poor and needy to pick up and use to feed themselves and their dependents. This was called gleaning. And in chapter 2, we see Ruth seek permission from her mother-in-law, Naomi, to go out and do this. Now, Ruth and Naomi are widows. They are some of the poorest and most vulnerable in society. This is a patriarchal society. It is led by men. If you were not married, or you didn't have a father, or you weren't a man, then actually you had a much lower status in society. As previously mentioned, because of their circumstances, under God's law, Ruth had every right to glean and gather behind the harvesters. But it's really interesting to note that Ruth didn't enforce these rights. Instead, she came with humility and she asks, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves left behind the harvesters. Now, when approaching this story as a reflection of our journey into a relationship with God, I think this verse is really important because it reminds us that if we desire to know Jesus more, we need to come to him with humility. We can't just march forward claiming our rights, proclaiming our good deeds, and demanding that he blesses us. Instead, we receive his grace through humility and the acknowledgement that he is the only one who can bless us and save us. 
Ruth humbly asks to, to gather the grain she's entitled to, and then she proceeds to put everything she's got into her gathering. She doesn't just rest and hope that she just gets given what is hers, but she plays her part. And as we read on, we see more of her character revealed in verses 11 to 13. Boaz extends even more grace and generosity to Ruth. We'll come to this in a minute. But when Ruth asks him why, he replies with these words. This is verse 11 and 12. He says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth has an admirable character. She was hardworking, she was loyal, she was kind, bold, faithful, and loving. And these characteristics had earned her a good reputation. Her reputation went before her. Boaz already knew of her heart and the sacrifice she had made to follow Naomi, even before he had met her. Again, this mirrors Jesus. Jesus knows all that we are, even, begin, even before we begin to follow him. It also reminds us that we have no need to boast of our own achievements or to extol our own character before others, especially before God, because he is always, already entirely aware of all that we are and all that we do, and he will bless us appropriately. Now, Ruth was also one of those exceptional people who was consistent in all areas of her life. She had true integrity. Now, when I used to explain, when I was a youth worker and I used to try and explain integrity to young people, we used to talk about living in a glass-walled house, that actually everyone could see who you were all of the time. Your character never changed. It didn't change whether you were in school or with your family or at a youth group or with people that you didn't know very well. And Ruth is like that. True integrity, she remains consistent all that she had done so far had been done out of love and devotion, not because she was trying to make a name for herself. We need to regularly check ourselves to ensure that we too are transparent people of integrity. There's very little point in us trying to falsely alter our character when we come before God to receive his grace as he already sees and knows all of us. There's little point in us trying to be seen as something great and mighty before others when all that we should care about is humbly pleasing our Lord. So, what about Boaz? What can we learn from him? Well, there is so much, so much in the whole of the book of Ruth, but also in this chapter. There's more than I can cover in a short Sunday morning service. And I do urge you to go away and read and reflect upon this chapter. It's so rich in all that we can learn and implement in our faith journey. When Boaz notices Ruth, realizes who she is, and hears of her humility in asking to glean, he responds to her humility with an outpouring of grace. As I've already mentioned, he was required by law to let her pick up the fallen grain, but he goes way beyond the required boundaries of the law in demonstrating his grace and generosity, and he actually asks his workers to let some additional grain fall to the floor. He gives abundant provision, more than Ruth hoped for, and yet he has one command. He says, 
she must stay in his field. If she stayed in his land, he would provide the grain, he would provide water for when she was thirsty, and he would provide protection from anyone who would seek to harm her. Look to him and he will provide. Don't stray into other fields, even if they look good. And Jesus extends the same command to us. He will show us such grace, such care, and such provision with the same condition of always looking to him. Now, there's a phrase used in verse 20, which is possibly one of the most important phrases used to describe Boaz. When Ruth mentions him to Naomi, Naomi explains, that man is our kinsman redeemer. He is one of our closest relatives. So what is a kinsman redeemer? The responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer are clearly defined in God's law back in Deuteronomy 25 verse 10. And it includes, amongst various things, it includes marrying a childless widow and raising up children in her dead husband's name. As I mentioned before, if you're a widow, especially if you had no children, actually your standing in society was basically nothing. This concept may seem a little strange and even insensitive to us to then marry a childless widow and raise up children in her dead husband's name. But in these days, it was a lifeline for a woman like Ruth. She's a vulnerable widow. She has little safety, protection, or provision for her future. This gave her the chance of a home, a husband, and a standing in the community through the children she would bear. But there were three things needed for someone to actually become your kinsman redeemer. The first is the right to redeem. This was usually given to the closest relative. The second was the ability to redeem. Could this person pay the price necessary? It's utterly useless you trying to redeem someone if you are just as poor or even more poor than them. And the third, and possibly the most important, was the willingness to redeem. Did you want to do this? If we're looking to this book, the book of Ruth, to see the mirroring of Ruth and Boaz with us and Jesus, can you see in these qualities of a kinsman redeemer the same sacrificial qualities of Jesus? He is our kinsman redeemer. The person of Boaz reflects the person of Jesus. Jesus became a man here on earth to give him the right to redeem us. He was entirely free from sin, and therefore he had the ability to redeem. He could pay the price for our sin with his perfection. And above all, most importantly, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. He had and always has the willingness to redeem us. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, we usually turn to the New Testament to help us understand the redemption we receive when Jesus died for us. And if we want or need a New Testament scripture to confirm that Jesus acted as our kinsman redeemer, then check out this in Galatians chapter 4. It says this, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. So now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. This whole story, the story of Ruth, is a redemption story. When we first meet Ruth, she is a destitute widow. We follow her as she joins God's people, 
as she gleans in the grain fields, and as we will hear over the coming weeks, how she risks her honour to follow Boaz, and in the end we see her marry Boaz. This is such an amazing picture of how we come to faith in Jesus. We all begin with no hope, with no part in God's kingdom. But as we risk everything to follow Jesus and put our faith in God, he saves us, forgives us, rebuilds our lives, and gives to us blessings that last eternally. Boaz's redemption of Ruth is a true picture of Jesus's redemption for each and every one of us. Now, as I said at the beginning, this chapter of Ruth is all about growing in grace. Grace is something that never gets old or tired. Grace is amazing, as the song says. Grace is beautiful and grace is necessary. And perhaps reflecting on grace is something God would like you to do over the coming days, to revisit what it means to you and what it has done for you. And I just want to end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I want us to end with this as our prayer. And Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, grow in the root of all grace, which is faith. Believe God's promises more firmly than ever. Allow your faith to increase in its fullness, firmness, and simplicity. So what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to just speak these words out together, this quote here, and then I'm going to pray for us to finish. So let's read it together. Grow in the root of all grace, which is faith. Believe God's promises more firmly than ever. Allow your faith to increase in its fullness, firmness, and simplicity. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the whole story um, of the book of Ruth. We thank you for what we see in chapter 2, for the grace that was poured out from Boaz, for the integrity we see in Ruth. And we thank you for that picture of a kinsman redeemer, for understanding what that could look like in ancient Israel, but also what that means for us through what you have done for us, Jesus. You are our kinsman redeemer. You have redeemed us, and your willingness to redeem us shows just how much you love us. I pray this week, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand your grace even more, and that we would look to understand all that you've done for us and how much you love us. Amen.